Welcome to the very last Engineering Matters of 2020. Where we go back to some of the biggest stories from 2020 and find out what happened next. And give listeners a peek behind the curtain at how we put the episodes together. And that means bringing in some of the team that you don't usually hear. Like Ross McPherson, our production and sound engineer. Hi. Did you just give yourself a fanfare? Yeah, I mean, there have to be some advantages for doing the sound. Then you'll need an even bigger fanfare for our publisher and head of podcasts, John. No problem. Hello, everyone. And thank you, Ross. I will just make a quick note for your annual review. (laughs) And then we have our resident storyteller, Velo Mitrovic, who produces Meat Talk and the Brewers Journal podcasts. Go listen to him. Links are in the show notes. We did this really incredible piece on Wagyu beef. Just how special are these cows? Well, brilliant mothers are... Bello keeps making brilliant suggestions for episodes that we've been too busy to make. Yeah, look, you guys, I just spoke to this amazing man who makes these biodegradable plastic from pea protein, and it could really be the future of waste-free packaging. We have the exact same lousy weather conditions here in the Netherlands. For all you protein lovers out there, Velo's ideas have fallen victim to COVID episodes, renewable energy papers, new working practices, offshore wind, racetrack contracts. But his agriculture-themed episodes will be arriving next year in all their umami glory. Back to the team, and of course, all listeners should recognise this voice. Hi, I'm Rian. Rian's a producer working on Engineering Matters and she lives closer to the studio than anyone else. So, thanks to COVID, she's hosted more episodes than anyone else this year. Thank you for saving the day, Rian. You're welcome. Actually, it's been a brilliant change for me because I've been producing a true life podcast about pregnancy. And it's been great to come into engineering and report on another industry. I've been blown away by some of the amazing things that engineers have been doing to help us in this awful pandemic. Well, that is what engineers do. They solve problems. And COVID-19 has been by far the biggest problem of 2020. One of the most valuable contributions has to be the everyday engineers that started 3D printing PPE to support key workers and care homes who were struggling to protect staff from COVID-19. Basically, the UK hadn't stockpiled enough to cope in a pandemic and the global supply chains that we normally rely on just could not keep up with demand. It was a secondary public health emergency and it was the first episode you worked on, wasn't it, Alex? Yeah, it was back in May. I'd just entered the world of podcasting as society came crashing down around us. We were all getting used to working remotely, which meant that although it was all new to me, it was once again all new to you guys too. It just felt right that my first episode was about enthusiastic volunteers stepping up to replace the older established supply chains. My favourite thing about this episode has to be your interview with Tony Thompson, and I think we should play the start to remind everybody about it. It is three in the morning, and Tony Thompson's alarm has just sounded, disturbing the fragile silence of the night. He would like to ignore it, but he can't. The shrill bleeping insists that he attends to something urgent. Something that simply cannot wait until sunrise. He turns off the alarm and tries to climb out of bed without waking his wife. Quietly, 
Very quietly, he tiptoes out of his bedroom. Unfortunately, I'm no ninja, according to my wife. I tend to wake her up and then go downstairs. And then he heads to a special place, a place where he keeps some very important equipment. He calls it his man cave, but... The wife calls it a conservatory. And uh, obviously at three o'clock in the morning, it does get a bit chilly in there. So when I try to sneak back into bed, I'm also very cold. And the best way to, to warm up is have a cuddle. She's always moaning I don't cuddle her, but at three o'clock in the morning when I'm cold and I've already woken her up, she's not best impressed. But before Tony can join his sleeping wife in their warm bed, he has something very important to do. Something that could save lives. Tony is one of the thousands of volunteers across the country who are sacrificing their sleep to fabricate protective face shields for workers exposed to COVID-19. And to save lives, he needs to keep his 3D printers running all through the night. For Tony... And his wife Lynn... A part of a volunteer army that are not only sacrificing their sleep to protect people, but are part of a movement that could change manufacturing forever. So basically, Tony was using his desktop 3D printer to print face shields using a biodegradable plastic material called PLA and sending these out to people who just weren't able to buy them. And by doing that, he became part of a bigger 3D printing community called Print for Victory that created these open source designs. He was part of a community of volunteers who used their technical skills and equipment to print over 21,000 face shields for local people who needed them. So how many shields did Tony print in the end? Well, I called Tony the other day to ask him, so I'll let him tell you. Well, we uh, we sort of stopped counting. We got to like 1,200 and uh, I just give up counting because they were just going out the door so fast. So I'd reckon we probably reached up to at least 2,000 pieces. There was a dip in demand at one point, but then as businesses started opening up again, Tony saw an increase. We still have odd requests. I could go weeks without anybody and then someone will ask me, you know, oh, can you do a couple of face shields because they're not getting on with. I think it's picked up again very, very, very slightly. I'm not having to get up at three o'clock uh, in the morning and that sort of thing anymore. And I can actually do some of my own work. So I'm still, if people ask, I'm still, I've still got all my stuff and we still, you know, we still put them out there. Tony says that he couldn't have done it without the support of his colleagues and the people who donated to his cause. I want to put a big thanks out to Northampton College, who, who, as you know from the first interview, were massively supportive of me and the people that, you know, support me through just giving uh, donations. You know, I, you know, I would have not been able to do as much as I did. I would have still had to go, but there would have been obviously a financial point of, you know, I can't really sell me car to <laughs> I need that for work type of things but some good has come of this awful situation and Tony now gets requests for other bits of work people have now showing interest in other things I can do and I have started to like make some things for Christmas and I've got into other home production I've got a little CNC machine now I've got a laser machine and I've just just got treating myself for Christmas to some dice elimination kit. So, yeah, it was uh, being thrown in at the deep end like that. I sort of opened my eyes to things that I, I like doing and, and I'm not too bad at it. From producing PPE for critical workers to producing toys and ornaments to bring some Christmas cheer. It was a brilliant effort to solve a problem within a really tight time frame. 
but not as tight as the timeline facing the engineers behind the Nightingale hospitals. I was so impressed by this episode, and it was something that had never been done before, turning an exhibition centre into a full clinical hospital in just nine days. I think the way that this began was really powerful, with Dan Harmer coming from InterServe Construction, who was suddenly told to drop everything and do something that everyone thought was impossible. This sort of job would probably take a year or so in the planning phase and then you would spend six months potentially doing all of the sort of the upfront work and then you would bring it to site and then it would take potentially three years to do a job of this magnitude under normal circumstances. But these were not normal circumstances and this man had been chosen to do the impossible. I got a, an email, I think it came through, it was late on Saturday or early on Sunday morning. His name is Dan Harmer project manager at InterServe Construction, and as the email landed in his inbox in late March, he was preparing to build a school in Hereford, but the email changed everything. At that time, I was quite comfortably sat at home working on this project, like I said, that I'm about to do in Hereford and sort of working out the finer details and the points of that. The message didn't give much away. And uh, it was basically clear desk. Yeah, you've got Monday to wrap all up all your loose ends and you need to be here. I wasn't told what the what the project was. It was just that you and three others need to be here Tuesday morning. I knew it was important because uh, the way that um, that it was pitched over to us that you know you need to be here Tuesday seven o'clock, big meeting. So um, yeah, that was that was how I was told. InterServe had been selected to convert the NEC Exhibition Centre in Birmingham into the NHS Nightingale. The Nightingales are a series of seven temporary critical care hospitals spaced throughout England ordered by government to be built in March, just as the number of coronavirus cases was spiralling. The hospitals were set up as quickly as was humanly possible. As the virus spread, it looked increasingly like the NHS would be overwhelmed and the country was at risk of an unprecedented cost in lives. My bosses had been working on it. So we learned that 400 contractors and 60 Gurkhas worked 40,000 hours to deliver the project and it couldn't have been done if they hadn't embraced digital technology. Because there was no way this could have been done if every detail to be constructed had to be represented in 2D printed drawings and then taken to site. Especially because details were changing on an hourly basis. Instead, they embraced digital technology in the form of Autodesk's PlanGrid software. And this is a good place to say thank you to Autodesk, who became a supporter of Engineering Matters in 2020. Every episode takes hours and hours of work, from interviews to scripting to audio editing and scoring. We love telling these stories and can only talk about the amazing engineering innovations and shine a light on how engineers are making the world a better place if we have supporters like Autodesk. So thank you to them. And thank you to our other partners, such as Mott McDonald, Fugro, Atkins, Costain, the Satellite Applications Catapult, Shell, GeoBear, Keltbray, and the National Composites Centre. Don't forget the Royal Academy of Engineering, who liked our episode so much that they gave us an ingenious award last year to help us tell more stories. Our sponsors for this episode are Universal Robots and Groundforce Shawco. Here's a quick message from Universal Robots. Attention SME manufacturers, are you ready to take your first steps with industrial automation but unsure where to start? 
Are you keen to improve your competitiveness in 2021, but wary of upfront capital investment? Well, don't fear. Universal Robots, the market leading provider of collaborative robots is here to help. Universal Robots is leveling the playing field by placing automation within reach of all manufacturers, no matter their size or previous automation experience. Visit www.universal-robots.com for details of the lease scheme that ensures you can put your robot to work now and with 0% interest to pay, spread the cost over the next 36 months. You'll also find a library of on-demand webinars and articles on how to get started with a wide range of applications. From packaging and palletizing to screw driving and assembly, sanding and polishing through to the automated quality inspection of parts. Visit www.universal-robots.com to find out more. And here's a message from Groundforce Shawco. Your solution, created by Groundforce Shawco, is an interactive standard solutions design tool, created to offer easy access to standard solutions, saving time and effort to receive a temporary works design. Built by the award-winning team at Groundforce, this easy-to-use program puts their standard solutions right at your fingertips. Access is available 24-7 on mobile devices and desktops directly from the Groundforce website. All designs created are made available in the Groundforce Technical Library. Find your solution today on the Groundforce website, www.vpgroundforce.com. And now, back to the show. My favourite Royal Academy episode was the washing machine project. Now this was a beautiful story. An engineer from London who gave up his dream job at engineering company Dyson so that he could use his skills to help people in need. And it all started in Tamil Nadu, in South India, with the promise he made to his neighbor. And um, it was it was a point where I, 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 I saw her hand washing clothes. And at that point, it was three hours into the evening of our conversation. And she was still hand washing clothes, scrubbing and cleaning each piece of cloth on her hands and knees. And uh, I, I promised her a manual washing machine. At, the, at that point, her eyes lit up. Ever since we made this episode, I've been dying to know if Divya ever got her washing machine. Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't been able to give a washing machine to Divya this year uh, because India's just been in lockdown uh, continuously. Hoping to do that uh, in in March uh, next year. A project to send washing machines to the Azrak camp in Jordan with charity Plan International has also been delayed due to COVID, with machines that were going to be sent in November instead moved to March 2021. We've really used this time over the last six, seven months to to formalise the washing machine project, you know, the kind of um, boring but important stuff of policies and uh, making sure that we're covering all the bases. And, and because we work remotely and with volunteers, I think in general, uh, people have been feeling a bit lost lately and uh, they want to help. And I think in that sense, the washing machine project has really thrived. So we've had an increase of 15 volunteers. So we're now, we're now at 21 people. Um, working on the project in, in various areas and, and that's really shown through some of the exciting new uh, partnerships that we're making and that's yet to be announced in, in 2021. 
One of the silver linings from the pandemic is that people have had more time to support the project. So the Washing Machine Project launched a crowdfunding campaign. Um, we've raised around £10,000 and always open to, to donations. We're a volunteer-led project and these donations really give us the boost that we need in terms of distributing these washing machines to, to places that, that really need it. And then we've we found that our funding has grown during the pandemic. So we've had partners such as Santander uh, fund us uh, and also uh, a large multinational company that's yet to be announced uh, in, in 2021. That's amazing. And thanks to everyone who listened and donated to the Washing Machine Project. I think it was another Royal Academy of Engineering episode that had the best intro of 2020. Is that the one where we told everyone that an asteroid was headed for Earth and scientists had only 18 days to intercept it and save the planet? Yes. In other words, the plotline to Armageddon. But in reality, the episode was an interview with Joe Lainton, an engineer working to bring launch capacity back to the UK so that we can launch our own satellites in the future. The deadline for his Skyrora rocket launch is 2023, so it's a bit early to go back and see how he's doing. Well, talking about space brings me on to a new technology that we looked at this year, and it could change the way that structures are managed forever. Aha, yeah. Episode 55, Saving Structures with Satellites. Yeah, this was amazing, because if the world had been using this technology a few years ago, then major bridge collapses, like the Morandi Bridge in Italy, might never have happened. So researchers look retrospectively at radar data for bridge structures to find out whether they could predict how they were moving. So you might remember the Tadcaster Bridge in Yorkshire that collapsed after massive flooding hit the UK in 2015. Well, researchers revealed that the rate of displacement of the bridge had actually been accelerating for over a month before it collapsed. So had we been measuring that, it could have been prevented. Exactly. And the UK has thousands of ageing bridge structures that have to be monitored and maintained. But North America's got even more. So the UK's satellite applications catapult started working with Canada's National Research Council to create an incredibly accurate new tool that uses satellite data to monitor displacement of bridges over time. And they called it Bridgetal. Yes, they did. And when we talked to the team behind it, they were moving from using it as a demonstration tool to becoming an operational one that could give early warning of movement and ultimately potential failure to asset owners. And since we spoke to them early in 2020, they've published a scientific paper in the Journal for Civil Structural Health Monitoring, and they're looking beyond bridge structures in terms of how this satellite data can be used in the future. And what we're now seeing is large companies taking an interest in this solution. This is Gemma Ball. She's a business manager for Intelligent Transport Infrastructure at the Satellite Applications Catapult, and I asked her for an update. Because Bridgetal is an application that will work at scale to provide early warning detections of structures failing, structures needing remedial work, and that observation is key. So really exciting stuff. Especially given the impact of climate change. And I think what's also really important is the changes that we've seen within environments. So, you know, the flooding scenarios, the heavy snow, the cold weather, the impact that has on our structures. Obviously, we, we know that it will make an impact, but to be able to be given insight early on that says actually this bridge has had some issues because of the extensive flooding or even in the instances where we can start to see deterioration ex exponentially the more than we ever saw before. That's where we really would value a, a product like Bridgetal coming in and, and helping 
people to make those accurate decisions and better choices actually, you know, where we need to put the investment in first and two the infrastructure. One of the things I was wondering about this is whether these satellites can monitor other kinds of infrastructure. I asked Gemma about that actually. So we are having a conversations looking at how we can use Bridgetal um, for different structures. So maybe looking at it in terms of railways or earthworks. Um, and then, of course, right back here into the UK, looking at, again, different types of erosion. So maybe it's coastal erosion. So we really are now looking at the concepts of what Bridgetal, the toolkit, has offered and looking at beyond Bridgetal. So not just about structures, but potentially that, that sort of geological world around structures and how, again, that will have an impact because obviously we've seen quite disastrous things happen because of weather, landslides. One of the great things about talking to Gemma is she's so enthusiastic about space and satellite technologies. I could talk all the day long about the opportunities in space. For me, you know, the investment into OneWeb, I couldn't have been more thrilled about because what it means is, is we are now realising that space is part of our critical national infrastructure and it should be. It collects data. That data is so useful. So yes, I do believe there are so many applications and just putting more investment into what satellites can do is paramount. I mean, if you think of it from a phone point of view, you know, all those years ago, we had those suitcase phones and all the purpose was was just to allow communications and now we can TikTok, we can do all those lovely things well if we had more investment into space and you know low earth orbit constellations that really will be able to give you millimetric movements or you know environmental surrounds so that you can you know have better prediction around earth and air quality you can understand things about soil quality soil is so important to our green agenda but even the movement of people that situational awareness so yes the that space is so much more than we ever thought it could be, and it will continue to be. What I've seen this year is that a lot of technical developments are coming from a foundation of data and analytics. Yeah, engineers have so much more information today about systems, users and performance than they ever have before. So it's no surprise that we've looked at a lot of digital technologies. And everyone wants to talk about one thing. Digital, digital twins. And I understand why. The idea that infrastructure can exist virtually as well as physically and managed and modelled remotely has got so many benefits. So many that eventually the whole of the UK is going to be connected via a network of digital twins. And that all of our infrastructure could operate as one big system. But that is a long way off. Increasing digitisation though has already benefited us through the last year. When COVID hit, the first thing we did was talk to engineers about how resilient our infrastructure was. And the most reassuring voice I remember was that of Judy Anderson from Mott MacDonald. She's an expert in the operation of water and wastewater systems. And I wanted to know what would happen if the pandemic wiped out the workforce. I expect that probably quite a lot of people might imagine that there are people, you know, operators and maintenance technicians perhaps on site for a lot of the time keeping these things operational. But but the reality is that treatment plants are, are pretty reliable. Um, it's very normal that they just have periodic visits from uh, operations, maintenance teams, rather than a kind of permanent presence. And, and the, anything that's critical these days I will have uh, telemetry on it. It will be remotely monitored at a central control room. There will be automated systems. So some things can be controlled remotely. Sometimes you might need to send out field um, staff if, if there are issues. But, but that can be seen from the central control room. So the reliance on having lots of people you know, on the site, you know, we've moved away from, from those days where we had 
an awful lot of people with these. It's, it's much more of a technology world, I guess, these days. At the time, COVID rates were rising exponentially, everyone was working from home, and I found her really reassuring. One of my favourite interviews from this year was the interview with the app developer, Zoe. Which turned out to be one of the most brilliant and useful developments from a software engineering perspective. We are proud, and I think the what's interesting is not really the number of people that are using the app. I mean, sure, that's that's a big number, and in in some ways, I think that's probably unique in the uh, at least for UK. Uh, in the sense, I don't think there's that many mobile apps that went from literally zero user to 1.8 million in the span of less than a week, and we did you know, one million basically in 36 hours. Um, so that's quite unique, and we can be proud of that. But fundamentally, that's not what matters. What matter is, um, do the researcher have you know, useful data and can make uh, you know, interesting discoveries? So they've not published a lot yet, but um, I understand that there is actually a lot going on and um, a lot that is being discovered. So I think I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to what they do. I think that everyone 2020 has been a really difficult year because just like everybody else, we've been operating in the grip of this global pandemic. It meant we couldn't visit projects or people or sites. We had to completely change our schedule. We had to work from home. And Ross had to explore a whole new world of sound effects. I've seriously listened to thousands of sound effects over the past few months, so I thought we could play a little game. Yes. Do we need to be in Teams? Microsoft Teams? Ugh. No, no Teams. I'm going to play you a sound effect and you have to tell me which episode it's from. Brilliant. Okay, here's the first one. Excuse me, is that a car? It sounds... it sounds more like a drone. I know what this is because I'm a bit obsessed with these. Then it must be a wind turbine? Yes, from episode 77, all about floating offshore wind. I love this episode so much, I was talking to Fugro about partnering with us for an episode on it. Because we'd worked with them on the offshore wind episodes that were so popular in the summer. Yeah, and then Boris Johnson suddenly announced that every home in Britain would be powered by offshore wind and set a target for floating turbines. Did you know he was going to do that? Well, I can't reveal my sources, but I did have an inkling. Right, sound effect number two. Okay, that is obviously a train. It is, but name the episode. Episode 70, on track for a rail revolution. Nope. No? That was a great episode, all about predictive maintenance on the railways. It was a good episode, but this particular train came from another episode. Was it episode 68? Why, yes, Alex, it was. So we partnered with Atkins on that one, and this was where a really brilliant, experienced transport engineer called Leslie Ward talked about creating designs that would reduce the need for expensive rail possessions. Bingo. OK, number three. And this is from one of my favourite episodes. I know this, so I'm staying quiet. Is it an F1 car from the episode on rebuilding Zandvoort's racetrack? No. It sounds a bit like a rocket launch. No. 
Maybe it's a plane then. Is it from the episode on electric aviation? No, that is the howl of the Vulcan. Why did you love this one so much, Ross? There was just something so compelling about Robert Fleming and his quest to keep the Vulcan flying. One of the most rewarding things for me in all of this, recognising the fact that uh, it's been part of my life for the last 22 years, is the reaction from the public. Whenever they saw the Vulcan, whenever they see the Vulcan, there's this sense of amazement, joy, enthusiasm, pleasure, and just seeing the smiles on people's face when she flew by was was, uh, personally hugely rewarding. I tended to watch the audience whenever she was flying rather than watch the plane. I saw the Vulcan fly in 2008. I was at the Farnborough Air Show and I'd never seen anything like it. There was this enormous bat-like bomber from a different age and it was banking and howling at the crowd. When the Vulcan to the Sky Trust reached out to me, I was immediately taken back to that sunny day southwest of London. Now that is a supermarket till. Sounds like an effect we might have in Meat Talk. Engineers obviously use supermarkets, but I can't think of where we use this sound. It has got something to do with supermarkets. Episode 65. This was our first episode made with Shell Bitumen. The clever technology that goes into modern asphalt, it's the quintessential good engineering. You don't know quite how much effort goes into making your daily life better, but it's all there, under your feet. In this case, a low-heat, low-odour material was used for an essential relay of a supermarket car park during the early days of the pandemic, when people were forced to queue for hours outside shops. Something else that we regrettably had to do differently in 2020 was cancel our live episodes. Yeah, we did, starting with engineering ethics. We had some amazing participants who were going to come together in Leeds at the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre, which is part of Leeds University, and debate how to empower ethical engineering practice. This is such a crucial topic right now because at a time of crisis, both for humans in terms of the pandemic and the planet in terms of climate change, people tend to take stock and look at how they live and how they work. So what we did for this episode was to look at the ethics of being an engineer and how to empower people to make ethical choices when it comes to the work they do. And this led me to a mysterious corporation of the Seven Wardens. It sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. Well, in a way they are. This is the organisation in Canada that oversees the Iron Ring ceremony, isn't it? Yes. A ceremony that sees every qualifying engineering Canada take an oath of responsibility that binds them as a profession and reminds them of their duty of care. And of course, you were in this episode, weren't you, Velo? I was. Let's listen. The Quebec Bridge tragedy was still a topic of fierce discussion when three years later, in 1920, the past presidents of Canada's Institution of Engineering and Technology gathered for their annual dinner. The conversation centred on the need for engineers to unite in understanding the responsibility that came with their profession, to protect constructors and users from harm. President Hubert Holtain reached out to someone he thought could create a ritual or oath to bind engineers and instil in them their duty of care. He turned to English journalist and novelist Rudyard Kipling. October 18th, 1923. Toronto, Canada. Dear Sir, 
I crave your attention to the following. The Engineering Institute of Canada was founded in 1887 and is representative of all the branches of engineering in Canada. It is a dignified body and active. At the retiring president's dinner, a year ago there were present six past presidents. Mr. J. M. R. Fairburn, chief engineer of the CPR, was the president in the chair. At that dinner, these seven past presidents were constituted a body to draw up some form of words that the young graduate in engineering could accept and learn by heart, something in the form of an oath or creed or part of a ritual, representing his becoming a member of the tribe. Everybody present thought it was a good thing. The seven past presidents were quite in earnest in their intention to tackle the problem seriously. The situation as it exists at the present time is indicated by the enclosed letter from Mr. Fairburn. We are a tribe, a very important tribe within the community, but we are lacking in tribal spirit, or perhaps I should say, a manifestation of a tribal spirit. Also, we are inarticulate. Can you help us? Yours faithfully, H.E.T. Haltine, Professor of Mining Engineering. P.S. Under separate cover, I send a copy of the last issue of the Journal of the EIC. So this beautifully read letter... Well, thanks, Bernadette. ...asking for help in writing an oath of responsibility was sent to a very famous British writer... ...who most people know as the writer of the Jungle Book. Rudyard Kipling, who immediately responded with this idea for a binding obligation known as the calling. The ritual has persisted for over a hundred years in Canada, and in this episode we asked whether it's something that the industry needs to adopt more widely. Academics at the University of Leeds told us that they think professional institutions need to strengthen their ethical codes of conduct around issues such as climate change. We partnered with Mott MacDonald on this episode and their chief executive explained how they empower ethical practice within their organisation through training and ensuring everyone's got the opportunity to express their concerns. And I would like to thank Mike Haig and Mark Enza for being so open in our interviews because they shared their own experiences of ethical dilemma in their work as engineers and that was really powerful. This episode really made me think because my wife was an engineer and she didn't have any kind of ethics training at university or in the workplace. But when I did my journalism degree at San Francisco State University, we had a semester-long ethics class. It was drilled into our heads that while accepting a cup of black coffee was acceptable, cream or sugar in the coffee turned it into a gift. Then I went to Hong Kong where it was common to receive presents after a public relations launch. I learned there that as much as we might like to think of ethics as strictly a black or white affair, it's actually quite gray with a different perception depending on culture. Well, Aristotle and the Confucian system of virtue ethics are similar in many aspects. With Confucian, ethics is based on self-regulation of primitive instincts, leading to the person gaining the capacity and courage to act more humanely. In the West, ethics seems to be tied more to legal issues, you do what is legally or professionally correct, as opposed to what is humanely correct. And I think it's here where some engineers struggle. So your company wins a big bid for a hydropower project, which is an amazing form of renewable energy. 
But the organisation you're working for has got terrible policies around relocating people. So as an engineer, do you have to do this work? I think as the world takes bigger steps towards reducing emissions and the need to change becomes a part of daily life, there will be a lot more engineers questioning the type of work that they do. Do we really need to build this particular structure this way? Or could we be using other materials or methods? So what else are we going to be talking about next year? We're going to be talking about carbon and net zero, um, plastic, which is still a massive problem. It's sort of been ignored a bit because of the pandemic, but it's there. Um, waste more widely and flooding, of course, um, impact of more extreme weather conditions. Um, the movement away from oil and um, how to create heat in a sustainable way. Um, money and limited space. Problems. And the solutions. See you all in the new year. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Ross McPherson, Rian Owen and Tim Sheehan. Meat Talk, the meat and poultry industry podcast, is produced by Velo Mitrovic. The Brewer's Journal podcast is presented by Tim Sheehan, who also edits the Brewer's Journal itself. Our audio producer and sound engineer is Ross McPherson. Series supervision, technical support and general crisis management is by John Young. And our awkward New Year's kiss is with Rory Harris. Special thanks to Universal Robots and Ground Force Shawco. Thank you for listening. For all the challenges we've faced in 2020, we hope you've enjoyed our stories. You can find us on all podcast apps, our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you.